So, if you grew up in Texas, you've likely heard the legendary story of the great dividing line at the Alamo, where Colonel William B. Travis, in the face of certain defeat, pulled out his sword, drew a line in the sand, and said, basically, look, if you stay and defend this fort, we're all going to die here. So make your choice. You can either stand on this side of the line and get out and save yourself, live to fight another day, or you can join me in the commitment to hold the line and fight to the death. This clear line, there's no middle ground one side or the other. Another famous dividing line, if you think of the the Berlin Wall, right, where you've got Soviet-controlled on the east side with their beliefs and thoughts and history, and then you've got the west side where there's the allies living a very different life, and you're, you can't live on the wall. You've got to be on one side or the other. And perhaps most importantly, there's the Red River, where to the south you have the Great Republic of Texas, and to the north, uh, the Badlands, um, also known as Oklahoma. But for real, you've got all these famous dividing lines throughout history, but this is the most consequential and cosmic dividing line in the history of humanity that is to come, where everyone who's ever lived will either be on one side of the line or the other. So we're going to look at the event itself that Jesus describes in this teaching, and then we're going to make four observations about what's going on there, and then we're going to look at a couple application points for us as we consider that. So first of all, let's just consider who's present in this story. Obviously, first and foremost, Jesus describes that he himself will sit as a judge and decide for everyone which side of the dividing line that they fall on. In verse 34, Jesus is described in this scenario as a king. And we also see the phrase, in his glory, or the the word glory used a couple different times. Um, So I looked up the the definition for that word in the original language, that word glory. And here's what it says in, in Vine's expository dictionary. It says, describing how Jesus would be presented in this moment of judgment where this dividing line is drawn. An appearance commanding respect magnificence, excellence, manifestation of glory, hence that of angelic powers in respect to their state as commanding. And so you've got Jesus here at this scene pictured not as a humble servant that we know him as when he is during his time on earth, but as a commanding, magnificent, authoritative king and judge at this scene. Who else is there? Well, you have in verse 31, you see it says that all of heaven is there when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. So you've got this picture of all of heaven being present for this event. Not only that, but all of earth. Verse 32, before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So Jesus is there, all of heaven is there, all of earth is there. This is the most cosmic and consequential event in history with a dividing line where there will be a separation and there is no middle ground. Everyone is designated a sheep or a goat. Zeros and ones 
one or the other. So let's make these observations about this text. So first of all, the sheep are followers of Jesus. Again, you've got the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. And the sheep in this story are followers of Jesus. Um, You see them called the righteous in verse 37. That's how they're referred to. In verse 40, We'll just read that one. It says this, And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to the least of one of these my brothers, you did to me. So he refers to the sheep as his brothers. And that's a, that's a significant term that I don't want us to just run past because Jesus is a lot of things to us who follow him, right? He is our Lord. He's our king. He's our savior. He's referred to as the bride of Christ in that familial term. But here, and oftentimes in the New Testament, we see Jesus referred to as brethren or brother. And so I want to look at a couple verses right there and camp out on that idea that Jesus identifies these sheep as his brothers. So let's look at a few verses here. John chapter 20, verse 17. This is after Jesus has been resurrected from the grave and he's appearing to his disciples. Um, And he says, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, But go to my brothers and say to them, and listen to the language here, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. So part of the theological idea of us being brothers of Jesus is just that we share the same father and then, of course, are by default brothers who have the same father. And you see that that that, that title of being a a son of God in Scripture is not a title that's given to everyone who's ever been created, but to those who are in right standing with him through their faith in Jesus. John chapter 1 verse 12 says this, But to all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And we're going to look at one more passage about the Jesus being our brother here in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. It says, For he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's us who believe in Jesus, all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. So when we think about Jesus being our brother, we have to remember that it's, he's, we're not brothers and sisters of Jesus because we are in some ways a lot like him in and of ourselves, but rather we are able to be considered brothers of Jesus because he stripped off his eternal glory and became one of us. He took on flesh, he became man and blazed a trail for us as men to be in a right relationship with his father, making us part of his family as his younger siblings through his work and his coming down to us and becoming like us, we are counted his brothers. Second observation is that the sheep are recognized or identified by how they treated the least of these among the sheep. And this verse, verse 40, which is probably the most recognizable, if you've been in church a while, maybe the most familiar verse in this passage, this idea that whatever you did to the least of these, my brothers, you did unto me. And it's, it's actually often misinterpreted. It's just one of those verses that we use a lot without the context it's set in. Um, and so as a result of that, often we, we define the least of these as like the homeless, the, the poor, those who are in dire straits, who are, who are removed oftentimes in our minds from 
the church and God's people, but that's, that's actually not who Jesus identifies the least of these as in this text. Obviously, yes, God wants us to care for those in and outside the church who are in need, right? We understand that. There's a hundred other passages we could point to, to to make that case. However, in this text this morning, it's referring to people among the sheep. He says, whatever you did to the least of these my brothers, those who Jesus identifies as his brothers, the sheep. So this, the least of these is kind of a, a subset of the sheep in this text. And so I want you to just kind of imagine that in verse, verse 40 when he's already made the separation. Um, he's, he's made the announcements of what's going to happen to the sheep. And they're saying, well, when did we, Jesus, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you a drink? And he said, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers, the least among you, you did to me. And so I think it's kind of begs the question, like, why is, why is that the dividing line, right? Of, of all the ways you could separate the zeros and ones, the, the haves and have-nots, right? The, um, the, the sheep and the goats. Why, why is the dividing line defined by how the least among the sheep were treated? Why does that become the standard? And I think there's, there's two ways we could answer that. One is that how we treat our own is the greatest litmus test of our own hearts, right? Um, imagine for a minute, there's a guy in the community. Um, I, by the way, I'm not talking about anyone in particular. Don't, don't uh, say this. But imagine for a second, there's a guy like it, say in Rockwall um, who is maybe in a public office, very well-known figure. And in and among the community, man, he's a hero. He's always supporting charity events. He's giving heartwarming speeches. He's out in front of everyone, just kind of a figurehead that makes everyone feel like, man, these things are going well here. But then imagine that same guy is at home, and he is just a terror to his family. Emotionally abusive to his wife, neglectful of his kids, right? You would say that who that guy really is is defined by how he treats his own, and that what's happening on the outside is essentially a facade, right? And so that's kind of one way we could answer that question. The other is this, is that it identifies them, it identifies the sheep as part of Jesus's bride, the church. And contrast that with the Pharisees, right? How did the Pharisees treat and the religious leaders the least among Jesus' brothers? How did the Pharisees and the religious rulers treat Christians? Because you would say the religious leaders and the Pharisees, they they did a lot of good and righteous things. They pursued a lot of the, the things of God, but the dividing line for them is not how well they followed the law or how much they tithed. The, the separation is how did you treat Jesus' followers who were in need? And what you find with them is that it was not only neglect, but often active persecution against them. And so the dividing line for who's a sheep and who's a goat is defined by what kind of reception Christians who are in need had from you. Because that is an indication of whether or not you're believing and trusting and following Jesus himself. And then the third observation we're going to make is that the sheep receive an inheritance. Verse 34 Listen to what Jesus says to them. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So there's two verbs there, two things they're told to do. One is come. 
which is interesting because it indicates that there is a nearness to God that the sheep will experience from that day forward that they are not experiencing as of yet, right? That there is a come, there's a draw near, which if you think about it, we're as followers of Jesus, we're already told to draw near to God. We're already told that he is near to us. But if you are following Jesus, you know that that relationship and that nearness is, is limited. Right? That from the beginning it was not so. That when God created Adam and Eve, it says God walked with Adam in the garden in the cool of the day. That there was this nearness and this harmony between God and man that has been lost through the fall. And that though we are in part invited to draw near to God through the cross and and that which is lost is beginning to be found and redeemed and recovered because we can pray. We can come in here and we can worship. But but the reality is like we have to fight for that, right? Like we we have to make a point to come here every week and remind ourselves and sing about and hear and think on the nearness of God because it is easily lost. But on this day, they are told, come, enter into this, this nearness to God. And they're also told to inherit. That Jesus says, like, I've, I've got something for you. Not only am I telling you to, to come and draw near to you, but inherit this kingdom that I've been building since the foundation of the world. That this thing you're going to enter into and inherit, this gift, this, this setting you get to live in, it's been being prepared for you, this home, since before you were born. From before the foundations of the world, God has been preparing the residing place, the final resting place for those who love and follow him. It has been prepared from the foundation of the world. And then you have this idea of the goats. The fourth observation, that the goats, on the other hand, are cast out into eternal punishment. And so before we move any further in that, I just want to kind of call this out. If you're, I don't know, if you're over 30, you've probably seen a shift in the last 30 or so years where the church seems to have grown more and more uncomfortable talking about God's judgment. It's a topic many places would just rather avoid, that we would rather not go there, that for, well, I don't, I don't want to try to diagnose it, but whatever it is about our society, that just kind of makes us squirm a little bit and we don't like that. So that being the case, there's, there's a warning for us that when we come across passages in God's word that make us uncomfortable, that make us squirm, that maybe we just don't like. We're at a crossroads where we can either accept that, hey, because I'm a sinner and have a fallen nature, there may be some things about the holiness and nature of this God who's beyond my understanding that just don't sit well with me, and I'm going to accept it, I'm going to embrace it even if I don't like it, or we can choose to kind of well, maybe that's not what it means and kind of redefine this or kind of maybe, man, maybe that's just kind of an archaic idea that got left in culturally and that's not really who God is. And when we do that, here's what we're doing. We're creating an idol. We're taking the God presented to us in scriptures and going, yeah, I don't, I don't like that part, so I'll just kind of round off that hard edge. And I'll just, I'll just kind of reshift and reshape this thing. And by doing so, we run the danger of making God into our own image rather than accepting that God has made us in his image to worship him 
as he's revealed himself through his word. But you see this here that the, the goats are not told to come and inherit, but they are told to depart. They are, they are cast out. And one interesting thing about this is when you read the story, you would almost expect that the righteous are told or the sheep are told, come inherit this thing that's been prepared for you. I've been building something for you from before the foundation of the world. You would expect the same to be said of the goats, but instead it's kind of different. He says, he says, depart from me, and you're going to go to the place prepared for the devil and his angels. That, that God has, you're going to end up in a place that wasn't really meant for you to be in. Right? But because you've not believed in Jesus and 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 and, and entrusted what he's done, accepted what he's done, you were being sent away to a place that wasn't really designated for you to begin with. Another interesting thing about this is that they are judged for their passivity. That these goats are not considered goats because of this list of terrible, heinous crimes they've committed, but rather for their indifference and passivity towards the followers of Jesus who are in need. So that's, that's what we see in the text. That's what we see in this story. We're going to spend the rest of our time considering some applications. And so the first one is just implicitly clear in the text, which is how we treat Christians in need is of utmost importance. And that, if you look at this text in and of itself, this story, these verses, and, you know, don't, don't try to balance it with other passages. It seems that that is the difference, right? That is the dividing line, is how you have treated Christians who are in need. It is the indication of whether or not we are sheep or goats. And notice that the, it's not just how you treated Christians in general, right? Not how you treated Christians who were warm and well-fed, right? It's easy to be friends with and commune with people who are warm and well-fed, right? But it's how you treated those who are suffering and in need. I think it can be hard for us to consider texts like this because let's, let's just go ahead and call this out, right? We live, most of us, in or near Rockwall. Rockwall County is one of the wealthiest counties in one of the wealthiest states in one of the wealthiest countries in the world, right? So a lot of us look at this text and go, gosh, I just, there's not a lot of times, I know there's stuff out there maybe in a, in a different part of, this, of the metroplex or on a different side of the world where, yeah, there's people who are hungry and need food and thirsty and need a drink, but right here in my circles, the needs that are right in front of me that I bump into on a daily basis, I just don't have a lot of people who are hungry and need something to eat or thirsty or I haven't had anyone walk up to my door lately naked and needing clothes, right? That's not a scenario I've run into very often. But I love how Jesus broadens this out, right? Because it's not just the, the hungry and the thirsty that are referred to here. It's the stranger. Hey, I was, I was a stranger. And all of us know what it's like to, to walk into a room or a community and, and feel a little out of place and just feel like, man, can I... Can I really get connected here? How's, what's it going to be like for me to try to make friendships here, whether that's a church, a workplace, a school? We know what it's like to feel the burden of a stranger. He also says that the, the sick. How many of you have ever known someone who's been sick? 
obviously everyone should raise their hands, right? All of us have known someone who is, is sick, and the question is, what do you do for them? When someone is in that kind of a need, that kind of a spot where they need help, what kind of care is extended to them? And it, it, this idea that those needs within the church are to take precedence we see that in other passages too. Galatians 6.10 says this, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Right? So Christians, we ought to do good to everyone. We ought to not just say, oh, you're thirsty or you're Christian? No. Oh, sorry, too bad, right? I'm only called to take care of other Christians. It's not that. But there is this sense of, there is an attentiveness to the needs of our own that takes precedence. And especially, Galatians 6.10, especially those who are of the household of faith. How we love those within our body is a testament not just to God as to our identity, but also to the world as well. You see that in John chapter 13 where Jesus says, hey guys, I'm going to give you a new commandment, a new commandment I give to you that you would love one another. Just as I have loved you, you would also love one another. And in the next verse, 35, he says this, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, man, I was, one of my most memorable experiences overseas with IGO is when I was a college student leading a team of nine students in Germany. We were there all summer. We had shorter-term teams coming in and out, just doing frontline evangelism work for uh, the church planters who live there, going out, meeting people, sharing the gospel. Real early on, like the first or second week we were there, um, we met this guy named Andreas. Andreas was this German guy who um, was a student. He was kind of a high school age. And, man, he just kind of became like part of our group almost. He just went with us everywhere. The guy was not believing. We had faith conversations real early on, not a Christian. But he was oftentimes translating the gospel for us to other people who spoke German, even though he didn't believe it himself. He would kind of help us in that way. Um, in fact, one of his friends named Jonathan, he brought with him, to meet us, and Jonathan actually came to faith. Uh, but Jonathan didn't really hang out with us a ton after that. Um, we tried to get him plugged into a church and whatnot, but um, Andreas still stuck around. He just wanted to be with us everywhere we went. And then finally, at the, at the very tail end of the summer, like with a week left, Andreas finally decides to believe in Jesus, right? He becomes a Christian, and we're, we're all excited. Almost everyone in that team had said some sort of faith conversation with him, through the course of the summer. I don't remember who asked him, but one, one of us asked him, so man, what, what did it for you? You know, like you're translating the gospel for us all summer to other people. You're bringing your friends and kind of playing a part in leading them to the faith that you don't even believe yet. Like what, what clicked, you know, what, what made the change? And he said, I just was struck by how you guys love each other. The nine of you. Like the way y'all love and care for and treat each other is unlike anything I've ever seen. It's just one of those cool moments where you, you've, you've read the passage and then you just see it clearly played out in real life. You're like, that's what this verse is saying, that like people will be drawn to Jesus by the love and community and care that is otherworldly that takes place within the body of Christ. So here's what I want us to do. I want under this application point that the importance of how we treat Christians in need, I want to celebrate some things. I want to, 
I'm going to commend you as a body on ways we are just doing this really well that I see in front of me all the time. And then on, on the back half of that, I want to also challenge us and say, man, what are, the, what are the ways we can get better? What are the things we can consider in light of this passage that would push us even more in that direction? And for me, it's as simple as looking at the things Jesus said they did. He said, I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. Is it? We have a very direct fulfillment of that command in our church. Um, there's three people who are all leading and serving, very involved in this church, who work for a ministry called the Bucket Ministry. I'm not going to share their full story this morning, but basically Savannah, um, whose dad started the ministry, her dad was in uh, some South American country, can't remember the country, and doing a house visit to this lady, and she offered him a drink. She lived kind of on a like a dock, basically, like a house on a dock, and went outside and scooped this muddy, murky water out of the pond and said, here. And something clicked in him that day that he said, I'm going to do something about this. Over the course of time, he began to start this ministry and organize things that provide filtration devices that are now in, I don't even know how many countries, but thousands and thousands of people, they provided these water filtration devices. And as they're doing so, they're sharing the gospel. They're training pastors to distribute those, to use that as a way to connect with people, to meet just a very basic need, connect with people and grow and build the church through that ministry. There's people in our church doing this very thing. When I see the the hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I immediately thought about Brienne and all the things she provides, like the list you got when you came in or you should have gotten with all the different ways you can serve. Some of those things you're going to see on there, Helping Hands, which provides food to those who are hungry in our community in Rockwell. A lot of you guys have served with them, have helped with them, or Soup Mobile that serves the homeless in Dallas. When I see the, the stranger in you welcome me, I immediately thought of our greeting team. Because I don't know how many times on a um, when people submit their form to become members at Crosspoint and it asks, like, what made you want to join? It's seriously, like, I've never done, like, any math on it, but, like, probably 80 to 90% of them mentioned something about just how welcome they felt. Just that, man, this, I just felt like I can get connected here. I can get to know people. I was greeted with such warmth and hospitality that I just stayed, you know? I just stayed. And that's significant. That's the kinds of things Jesus is talking about. There's the, I was in prison and you visited me. Again, we don't, don't have a lot of people around us who are in prison because they are falsely accused or because of their faith in Jesus, right? And you see Paul talking about that a lot in his letters, like, man, please give my regards to so-and-so. He was the only one who came and visited me when I was in prison, what we do have, which is pretty similar, is there's a ministry called Global Advance that Jonathan Shibley leads, who's also a member of our church. And not too long ago, there was a pastor in Pakistan that was under death threat. He was legitimately scared for the life of himself and his family. And we were able to partner with Global Advance to help get him out of that situation into safety to help him in a time of need. So there's as I could go on and on, but there's so many ways in which our church, you, are, are practicing and doing these things. But I think it's also appropriate for us to, to say, what, how, can we how can we be challenged by this verse as well? 
And the questions I would ask of us in light of that are, what are we doing to minister to those who are in need at our church? Are we moving towards leveraging our time and our resources to meet the needs of others or towards ourselves? One question I thought of that if you're, here's the deal, like if, you're, if you've been a member here for a while, I hope you can answer this question and it's, it's a question we should all consider. Now if you're, if you're a guest today, I don't want you to feel like you should be able to answer this because you don't know anyone here, but would anyone in this body, for those of you who've been members a while, would anyone in this body say of you, gosh, I am so glad the, insert your last name, I am so glad the, the Martins, whoever, are here because, man, they really came through in this situation. Can, would anyone in this body say that of you? Would anyone in this body say, gosh, I'm so thankful that family is here, that person is here, because, man, when this need came up, they stepped up and met it. There ought, that ought to be able to be said of us if we're in line with what this text is talking about. Second application point is Jesus identifies with the sufferings of his sheep. I'm going to read a quote about this, but this, this can be easily missed in this text that, you know, we're supposed, we can be so focused on the dividing line and who's on what side in the criteria that we miss this idea that Jesus said, hey, when you were, those of you, the least of my brothers who were helped in a time of need, like, by helping you, they were helping me. And the goats, by ignoring you, they were ignoring me. That right, that Jesus identifies with the needs of his sheep. And so, favorite book, probably my favorite quote in my favorite book outside of Scripture, Knowing God by J.A. Packer. Um, he talks about this idea that God actually makes his own contentment dependent on ours. Right? The God of heaven who, who created Everything who has no needs and no wants voluntarily chose to tie up his own contentment and happiness with that of his sheep. He says it much more uh, beautifully than that, so we're going to look at the way he said it. He says, God was happy without humans before they were ever made. He would have continued happy had he simply destroyed them after they had sinned. But as it is, he has set his love upon particular sinners. And this means that by his own free voluntary choice, he will not know perfect and unmixed happiness again till he has brought every one of them to heaven. He has in effect resolved that henceforth for all eternity, his happiness shall be conditional upon ours. One of the most Famous passages in Scripture is just the verse that's just two words. Jesus wept. Because it speaks to the care and compassion of the God who did not remain distant and removed from the needs and sufferings happening on the earth he created, but entered into it in a way that he can not only sympathize, but empathize 
with the sufferings and difficulties that we as his sheep encounter. That it's very personal to him. One of my least favorite phrases in all of English is, hey, it's not personal. <laughs> That's just, we say that as an excuse when we know we have like really wronged someone and treated them terribly. Hey, look, it's, it's not personal, right? I mean, there are some situations where that phrase is appropriate, right? Where that, that can be said as like, hey, this is a, this kind of a decision. I'm not upset at you. But oftentimes that phrase is used as a, um, hey, look, I know that was really, really inconsiderate of me. But hey, man, you know, it's not personal, right? I mean, I just think I can imagine, you know, Jesus takes it personally because we're his brothers, right? Imagine if you don't have a brother, maybe a sister or a son, daughter, father, whatever, family member. I don't have a brother, so I'll use my sister. I can imagine if she lives out in Pampa, if someone in Pampa just did something terrible to her, right? Like physically harmed her or threatened her or um, maligned her or otherwise just did something just really awful to her. And if I were to run into that person, they would say, hey, man, I know she's your sister, but hey, it's not personal, the heck it didn't. You made it personal when you did that to my sister. That matters to me. It is very personal, right? I mean, that's the, the mindset we see of Jesus towards his sheep. That, hey, when they did that to you, it was personal. Whether it was good or bad, when they helped you, that was, I took that personally. I identify with what you are going through. When you are suffering, when you are hurt, you can trust that God takes that personally. It matters to him as if it were happening to himself. We could say the same thing about the cross. That Jesus looked upon our sin and our need, knowing that because of our sin and rebellion, we had put ourselves in a position where we were unwilling and unable to be in a restored right relationship with God, and as Ephesians 2 says, that we were then objects of his wrath because of our sin and rebellion. Jesus saw that need, and he took it personally. And he said, I'm going to make that problem my problem for the sheep. I'm going to take that sin and that punishment upon myself. So he goes to the cross, he takes the penalty for the sins and rebellion that we had committed, and he paid for it personally, that we might be restored into fellowship and a right relationship with God the Father. So we're going to do something just a little bit different as we wrap up. Um, I've asked a couple people to stand in the back. Um, we don't normally do like a response time where during the last few songs we ask you to go talk to someone, but in light of a text like this where we're facing this story where cognizant of the idea that there will come a day when all of us will face the dividing line and we will be on one side or the other. So I want to give you an opportunity that if you don't know, like if you think when I come to that dividing line, I do not know if Jesus will see me as a goat or a sheep. Like if that's you, I want you to have a chance to talk to someone. So I've asked Scott Sutton in the salmon colored shirt back there by the sound booth um, and Laura back there, hey, 
um, to be available to talk to you. And so Brad Cardwell is getting up as well in the black vest. So just, I just want to throw that out there. If you have concerns about that, there's your three leaders in our church who would love to just talk through that question with you. So um, let's pray. We'll take the Lord's Supper. And then during these next two songs, if you want to take advantage of that time to to talk to someone about that, I want to invite you to do so. So, God, thank you for our time together today, for the songs we get to sing about your, your love and this, the idea that you became one of us to put us on your back and bring us to your Father. God, we're grateful for that. And I pray that we would just take this, this passage very seriously, knowing that one day there will be a dividing line and we will be on one side or the other. And I pray that our, pray that we would be aware of how we're identified in that moment. And that for those of us who are, consider ourselves to be trusting you, that we would find evidence and affirmation that we, we are doing those things, that we are putting forth the indications that we are part of your bride, that we are your brothers. And God, if not, I pray we would reckon with that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.